Allison, I want to come to you today with a really serious question about World War II. Oh, okay. I'm ready. So just pretend you're Tom Hanks or something and just really think, you know, drop down into that and think seriously about it. I will. What is the greatest tragedy of World War II? Is it A, Pearl Harbor, B, D-Day, or C, Molly Saves a Day? I think at Hanks would say D-Day. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. This is Mary. This is uh, still Allison, the newest president of a local Tiger Woods fan club. Oh, my God. I can't believe we have to get into this. So first of all, I should say that we're recording this on inaugural day. So, you know, like I would say I was coming into this episode with a lot of like positive energy. And then you have to bring up once again, you know, like a really dark thing we took in together a few days ago. We sat down and we watched the two part Tiger Woods documentary. It's well over three hours. It could have been 10. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I did make the prediction before, just like you can confirm this, before I hit play, before we hit play on this thing, I said, Allison, will come out of this pro Tiger Woods. So as all of you know, this season is existential for us, right? Because we're Mollies. And so we have to constantly check ourselves and what that means in light of new information. And so kind of really figuring out who Molly is, particularly in book five, which I would say is, you know, somewhere like in Dante terms, like it's the infernal, like it's, it's not good. So then, you know, you kind of lure me into a sport. Excuse me? (laughs) Because you like the sport and you loved the Michael Jordan documentary. Yes. And I find stories about people who will not stop at being great, fascinating, and the parallels between that and Molly's pursuit to win the color war, it, it's shocking. Oh my God. Well, I mean, you're kind of glossing over bigger pieces of this, which is that, you know, I had also encouraged you separate for me to watch Lance Armstrong documentary, which I found fascinating that he participated in. So you have yes. Lance speaking directly to camera, defending himself. And I didn't come away from that documentary thinking Lance Armstrong was cool or interesting or attractive. Tiger Woods does not participate in this documentary. And yet from the jump, before we hit play, I was like, Allison's going to not only be pro-Tiger, but have a crush on him by the end of this. Admittedly, I can't go there. It's like not in me to have a crush on someone like Tiger Woods. You know, it's just like not my journey in this life. But at the end of you, like not even like five minutes, you were like, Tiger's hot. So I'll just paint a quick picture for you. Book five, we learn Molly can't really swim. Doesn't matter. She goes under, she goes underwater for a challenge. She completely goes for it. All I'm going to say is Tiger Woods just became a teenager when this book came out. And he spends from that time on in a relentless pursuit for greatness. Did he pick up Molly Saves the Day and learn a thing or two? Obviously. I mean, maybe. He wasn't really allowed to have fun. That's what we learned. Like, he was pretty locked down. Like, I don't think he was allowed to go to summer camp. I'll say that. Did you have fun reading this book? 
I did um, not. I've had a lot of feelings reading this book. I thought I was having a breakdown. There are times when you read something and you're like, wow, this is really challenging me and maybe it's going to lead to some kind of personal breakthrough. And in this instance, it just led straight to a breakdown where I'm sending you text messages very late at night saying, Allison, like, what is happening here? What is this book? And I again, I said to you, I feel like I jinx this every time because every time I say, the last episode I said, this is the craziest book I've ever read in this series. (laughs) Every single time I do that, I think I did this with both Felicity and Samantha. The the following book is like absolutely out the window crazier. And this is like not even close. You thought that birthday was nuts and made absolutely no sense. Go to summer camp with this crew. So like Addie had to stop a robbery Kirsten stole off of a dead man. Sure. Samantha had to stop a drowning and a potential, you know, shipwreck, which was quite dramatic. Felicity basically saves the future United States. Sure. Josefina, she's trying to save the soul of everyone she comes into contact with. Absolutely. As always for Molly, the stakes are on the ground and sky high. (laughs) They're apps and also in a very kind of dark way, her wins are absolutely not wins. <laughs> no. It's like she tor- she forces everyone else around her to celebrate her accomplishments or like induces them to hype her. But if you actually stood back from the situation and looked at it dispassionately, in this instance, you're like, okay, well, you did win the color war. We'll get into that phrasing later. But to do so, you did drag your entire team through a patch of poison ivy and, like, in fact, give it to the entire camp. Is that a win? I mean, to not see Molly as a symbol of the downfall of the American empire at the climax of the Cold War is to miss, It is to really miss exactly what Valerie was doing. I So you tend to read these books late at night when you're under a state of duress anyway. Yes. I try to set myself up in like a cocoon, right? Like I'll be eating good breakfast foods or I'll have a cup of coffee or a hot cocoa. And I try to really kind of like set a mood. When I tell you I had to keep putting this book down because I just kept saying, Valerie, you did it again. I'm not safe. You're not safe. Molly's not safe. I'm very apprehensive about people swimming in books when they don't have the proper training. Is this because my one time at camp, I was not paying attention during the swim drill and so I failed it? Yeah. Wow. I was not allowed to swim the whole time at camp, but I had to wear a red cap, which was for folks who were non-participants. I regret if I've told this story before, I apologize, but you know, it, it stuck with me. So I got it. This is like a personal journey for you. It's a political journey in some ways. You know, I just said to you off air that, you know, Trump pardoned a lot of folks, Lil Wayne, others, um, did not pardon Val Tripp, which, you know, we wouldn't expect because she's not a criminal. And yet, I guess my mindset was there because I just read this book. And to me, there have been a lot of crimes to the extent to which, as I said to you just before we started recording, every line of this should be stricken from the record. Almost every line of this book. And here's the situation. This was published during the Cold War. But, you know, it got real hot for both of us. And in (laughs) fact, I'm dating that to the original dedication of this book. Before we jump into the summary, I just need to let everybody know. Stop what you're doing. If you're driving, pull the car over. Take a beat. This book is dedicated to the one, the only, the original criminal, the original creator, Allison. Pleasant. It just says to Pleasant. To Pleasant. That's it. That's it. 
Most of her books are dedicated to extended family, to friends, to young people that she's connected with. I'm going to say this. This book is set in a place called Camp Gowanigan. I don't ever want to go on again. I never want to go on again. Even once. <laughs> I, I just keep not. thinking about, I don't know what year Platoon came out. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Allison. Yes, have you seen Platoon? Yes, I have. Starring the one and only Charlie Sheen. Truly an insane film. But anyway, um, I just remember in Platoon, we hear in voiceover very early Charlie Sheen as a soldier in Vietnam saying, quote, war is hell, grandma. He's writing a letter to his grandma. And I'm just saying, like, war is hell. Like, Molly saves the day as hell, Grandma. And on that yeah. note, I feel like we just have to get into this. I'll, I'll get right into it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So from our beloved publisher, we learn Molly loves Camp Gowanigan from the moment she arrives. She spends two wonderful weeks there singing, hiking, and canoeing with Linda and Susan. When the camp director announces the color war, Molly is afraid that the fun may end. Okay. Does it start? (laughs) Molly and Susan are on the blue team. They have to capture the flag hidden on Chocolate Drop Island by the red team. Linda is on the red team. She is their enemy and their friend. Will the color war ruin camp for everyone? Or can Molly think of a way to save the day? Somebody needs to think of a way to save Molly. I want to say something right away about this. Okay. So I think something that reads very differently then as now is... Valerie, not not subtly at all by the end of the book, it becomes clear that Molly understands something about what's at stake when someone who is your friend becomes your enemy, right? That's the crux of the book. She has to yes. fight against this person and how does that make her feel? And obviously this is supposed to be a metaphor for the war. But I think something that's challenging about these books that comes up again and again, and I think about this a lot, you know, there's that old famous parable on, or that old famous kind of saying on Instagram, we can disagree about things like ice cream, but not racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like with this book, it's sort of like, again, the stakes being everything and nothing at the same time. Someone can't actually be your enemy and your friend at the same time. Like you can have hardline disagreements and hardline differences with people, And that can be a good thing because ethically, if you don't agree or if you have these differences, maybe you should not be friends. Right. And I think that actually is so resonant right now, like literally today, the day of the inauguration. And that's so much of 
Joe Biden's speech was calling for unity. And a lot of folks have very rightly pointed out that, and he kind of paints this picture of the American past that's sort of like, we've always had the same values. We've always had the same stakes. And in fact, it's like, we've always been at war with ourselves because Mm -hmm. there are certain things on which core people cannot agree. Like from the beginning, slavery was a conflict in our country. And you can't really be friends with someone if you do disagree about something. Like in 1776, if you had diametrically opposed views on slavery, it would be very hard to say, and we're totally friends and it's fine and that's not an issue. So there's this false sense of reunion that we insist upon as part of our national project that actually erases like very real conflicts that are worthy of you know, being conflict or having Mm -hmm. conflicted views over. So in other words, like if you were to stand up and say, well, Black Lives Matter actually really matters to me and I'm not willing to just sort of put that to the side to privilege like my friendship with you or reunion with you uh, over that, like that somehow you're less of an American if you stand up for your beliefs. And I think that there's something in this book that's trying to echo that by saying, like, unity is the more important thing. But as you're saying, what the book actually reveals is you can't actually maintain a friendship or there will be challenges to a friendship if you're at war with each other. I kept thinking even in this description, because this really does come through over and over in the book, this line that with the announcement of the color war, Molly is afraid that the fun may end. I feel like that sentence totally unintentionally, and obviously we're projecting because this is not what this book is about. To me, that is the arc of racial politics over the last 30 years of people in power and white people, especially saying, you're ruining this for me by telling the truth. Yeah. Like by talking about race in a way that is true and honest. Like, I think we don't need to get into the specifics because they really don't matter. It's going to be overturned by executive order. The 1776 report is a report that essentially says, for some people, you've ended my vision of this country by telling the truth about color, about Mm -hmm. race. Mm -hmm. So it's like as if like Molly is holding the pen, like the fun is over if you start telling the truth. Because when people start to reveal how power has been working, it's it's uncomfortable for people who've had it, Mm -hmm. right? Because then it starts to upend. And obviously, I know there are people perhaps listening who are saying like, this is about a nine-year-old at camp. But this book is also very selectively leaving out a much wider context that I think explains why people are able to have such a romanticized vision of literally wartime. Mm -hmm. Like, girl is in a canoe, she's crafting, and we'll get into this at the same time that for many children, life is terrible at camps. And and we'll talk about what we mean by that, but... Yeah, I mean, I think Val creates already a very privileged situation and then which she needs to sort of invent. And so that Molly can have a thought experiment, basically, Mm -hmm. about war for her. It's it's purely something that exists in theory or in play. And I think the emphasis on play and this color war, which is a phrase that is hugely charged, I think, then as now, I think it just further demonstrates like Molly is literally vacationing in a place where other people live. So in other words, Molly's vacationing in a theoretical war that has absolutely zero stakes and is in fact play at the same time as you're suggesting that actual children elsewhere are having their lives torn apart 
by actual mm. war. So then to hear Molly deliver lines as she will towards the end of the book, like, quote, first I practically drowned, she thought. Then even worse, my best friend treats me like an enemy. I guess friendship doesn't count during a war. I mean, she's literally talking about, you know, a, a game of capture the flag. I yes. mean, the stakes to her are like could not be lower and higher based on, you know, what's real to her. But I think for us as historians reading the book, as adults reading the book, um, as people living in 2021 reading the book, it's really hard not, as you're saying, like people might be listening and thinking, hey, it's just a nine-year-old at camp. But we're bringing like all of our 2021 experiences to this. We're bringing our wider knowledge of World War II than Molly had to this. Hmm. And so it's harder not to kind of think with those things as we read the book. So maybe we should actually start back at the beginning because there's so much to get into in this book that is, we're not kidding, truly insane. So as a quick kind of thing too, if the only thing you know about this, it's, it is shockingly similar to Samantha Saves the Day. Yes. And I want to give a shout out to a, a possible listener. I don't know. I guess I, you know, like you like to see them everywhere. Who knows? Wow. Katie, who uh, appears to be an adult, making an assumption on Goodreads. Oh, she says rereading as an adult. Good Here's what her. she says. All the camp songs Trip makes up are very annoying. Love. That's true. And this casual mention that she hates bugs and worms. I This turn of phrase, Katie, you're great. She says, are so obviously Chekhov's creepy crawlies. Wow. And when she wrote Chekhov, she linked to the Wikipedia article um, for Chekhov's gun. Brilliant. Lastly, she says, Valerie Tripp's made-up geography always sounds the same. Chocolate Drop Island, Poison Point, Goose Lake from Samantha Saves Today. It's all on the nose. I actually had a similar thought, minus the checkoff reference, because I guess I'm not that highbrow. But, like, shout out to Katie. Like, I'm impressed by that, for real. Thank you, Katie. Um, also, Allison, did you know that we have a Wikipedia page for the show that people have yes. edited? Because my mom stumbled on this this week and called me, and she whispered into the phone as if the internet's a secret and was like, <laughs> do you know that you're on Wikipedia? And I was like, Mom, it's, like, not a bad thing. All to say that I do think Val's historical imagination of recreation, it's like she is so deeply embedded in a lake vacation narrative. It's yeah. like... She's there and it's a lake with an island that is central to the plot. You know, like the indigenous co-opting is deep with her. I mean, the camp is called what? Camp Gowanigan, which I tried to research to see if it's based on anything. And I think it's just a, a play on words. I believe Val made up that word so that it would sound like it's playing. It would sound plausible for other camps of the era that are using actual indigenous words. But it would work for her rhyme scheme for the songs that are, of course, I think in some ways valuable to her for moving the plot forward or just like showing how hyped people are about the camp. I think something that's weird about the opening of this book is that like... Okay, we arrive with them at camp, and as you said, there's a moment of fat shaming about the director of the camp, which is on what page? Literally the second page. Okay, second it's page. Quick. A roly-poly woman came toward them. Miss Butternut, I'm the camp director. Miss Butternut didn't deserve that. I just want to say that. No, she didn't, and I'm going to say something we didn't deserve, Page one. I'm I'm going, you know, wow. you start wanted to the start with Do too it. pleasant. I want to start here. So we learned that Molly loves, Molly loves camp, even though she's a little bit afraid of the water. 
I'm not loving the hail, hail, let's give a cheer in the context of 1944 for these campers. I'm going to tell you something. We can go in a lot of different directions when we talk about the complexities of camp as a term in the 1940s. There were camps in New York, so Samantha country, where German and German-American youth actually saluted Hitler in the United States. Nope. I mean, I'm saying no to that concept. I believe that that took place. Yes. I think that's an aspect of our history that people forget, which is that we had German POWs here and and also like German Americans like taking part in a lot of what we would consider like pro Nazi behavior, not in 2020, lol, but um, even earlier. And you know, there's been a lot of books about the civil rights movement that make the point that you know a German POW in the South could eat at any lunch counter, mm. no problem. But if you were a black person, you could be denied service at will and also be conscript- conscripted into service. But I didn't know that piece about summer camps, German-American kids and others saluting Hitler. That's insane. I was also, and we can link to the article, I was really struck looking at it and looking at the research that had gone into this. You're always kind of onto something when all of the photos are watermarked by an archive because it means they don't want them just kind of getting out there into the ether. Mm. And to see these American children saluting, to see them assembling. If you watch the film from last year, Jojo Rabbit, it was reminding me a lot of that, that there's this very prevalent in the 1930s camp culture of like what is camp for like molly molly is at a very patriotic camp these children are at a very patriotic camp and again to the to the chorus of but they're nine you're learning things even when you're very young about what it means to be part of your country or to belong Mm -hmm. and the simple fact that molly's camp is i don't know if we want to say segregated but like everyone looks like molly Mm mm-hmm Like all of these things are teaching her like this is what it means to be an American girl. You go to camp with people who are the same race or the same background as you. You learn salutes, you learn songs, you learn how to be dedicated. And then her kind of like fleeting glimpse of war is a fight with her friend. Yeah. And yeah, which is a lot to say, but um, but also that it has the trappings of kind of like a martial culture, like as you're Mm -hmm. saying, you know, there's like camp songs like they're literally doing like Marine Corps style, like we are the red team, the mighty, mighty red team, like people want to know who we are. So we tell them and it's like, whoa. Um, But also it's like they have a prison in the color war. Like there's all these things about sort of this vision of like a militarized society. And I also think we were saying off mic that there's so much of that in the 1930s that's already a legacy itself, like a second generation Mm -hmm. of this obsession with civilization and manliness and the culture that really begat the um, Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and all of these groups that in many ways like pretend to like air quotes go back to nature and pretend to like take on these tropes of indigenous culture and all these other things like learning how to read, um, like understand nature, how to do these basic skills um, in order to like vacation in them so that they can emerge more civilized, like that they have mastered these skills um, and then go through these steps of being like savage to barbarism to civilization, which is the book that um, Gail Biederman uh, wrote that is excellent um, that kind of lays all this out. But that was a, that was a generation earlier. Mm-hmm. That was their parents' generation. And yet, so Molly in some ways is like 
taking on second generation views of civilization by doing this stuff. And obviously we still have Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts today. And that's presented completely unproblematically here, but also with this very heightened wartime patriotic piece to it as well. There's something about it to where like Molly has a kind of fervor about camp. Like she really wants to be good at it. Yes. And she really loves camp. And this comes through very clearly, even on page five, um, as they're doing salutes and as they're raising the flag each day, Molly always got goosebumps up and down her arms when they sang the camp song. Standing shoulder to shoulder with all the other campers made her feel proud. She did love Camp Gowanigan. And I think what's what's different, I was sort of reflecting on our show this past week, if I may. Sure. Um, <laughs> and thinking back to Felicity Times and a conversation that we had with someone who is not on this show. And not that we not that we didn't take Felicity seriously, right? But one of the kind of enduring comparisons that we made to kind of, you know, break the wall for a second was Firefest, because that was all mm. over the news. And now I feel like when we read Samantha and Molly, it's the breakdown of our republic. And <laughs> I think, you know, the stakes have always the stakes have always been somewhat high when you're writing a book about what it means to be a person of a country or what it means to be an American girl. Um, but I think it's so hard to read Molly with any kind of neutrality when we have QAnon and we have fascism on the rise and we have people with Nazi memorabilia and with Auschwitz sweatshirts storming the Capitol. Like we are reading these books differently because in the two years we've been doing this show, our country is different than it was two years ago. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like, you know, so that means we have to throw Camp Gowanigan out. I think if we had read Molly first, I can think of times when I have been proud to be a person from this country. I read this book completely differently this week. Like I, I struggle to feel that way. Yeah, I, I can that a lot of what you're saying resonates with me. And I think there's something too about sitting down to talk about this book the day after the last day of the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. where I think just emotions wise, like I'm feeling all over the place. Like I'm skeptical. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm grateful that he's out of office. I'm heartbroken at, you know, so many things going on in our country right now, like over 400,000 people have passed from COVID as we marked yesterday you know, as a country. And it is very difficult to see this sort of um, uncomplicated embrace of patriotism that's now being taught to these nine-year-olds that does not speak at all about the true origins or driving factors of this war. So Mm -hmm. as Molly is embracing sort of like the window dressing of this war or of the citizenship that it's calling for, you know, singing the songs, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, really treasuring this, um, these rituals about her day at camp, you know, again, I can't, we can't help but note that we are in book five and there is still no mention of the Holocaust. And living as we're, as you're pointing us to two years into doing this show through, again, like a weird rise of the Nazis who have, frankly, they've always been in our country since World War II in small pockets. But this domestic terrorism that's been on the rise and the insurrection at the Capitol, it's it's so irresponsible to me that it's not in Mm -hmm. these books and it's harder and harder to ignore. And yes, these books are crazy to read and I was laughing reading it, but there's something to this where it's sort of like, look at the lengths that Valerie Tripp would go to 
to not have to make these books about any of the real issues driving this war. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually shocking to me. And in a way, it's like the careless disregard or the innocence that a nine-year-old would have is what has happened in the sort of framing of these books. Molly takes on a reference to, she references seeing newsreels because she knows that D-Day has happened. We'll get into why it inspires something that she does in her color war. Yeah, Allison has her hand in her, in her, (laughs) her head in her hand. But we're supposed to imagine that whatever else she saw in those newsreels hasn't happened or isn't coming into these books. And there's something about that, that as we read these books, it's just so irresponsible to me. What I think is such an interesting contrast, because I kept thinking about this and kind of the boundaries of what would be appropriate. Compare the difference between this and the way that Claudia in the Babysitter's Club and her sister, Janine, learn about their grandmother's internment. Mm. So their grandmother is a peer age-wise of Molly McIntyre. And so her version of camp, in inverted commas, is being detained at a facility run by the U.S. government. And it's hard not to think of Molly's experience on a spectrum from Honestly, Molly's camp sounds pretty cool. Like, maybe I just yeah. haven't gotten out of the house a lot. Uh-oh. Maybe not the patriotism part, but like... Listen, the sharing a tent with six other nine-year-old oh, girls, like, absolutely not. Like, I'm sorry, I have certain hygiene needs. Like, I'm not going to camp. It's just not happening for me. Like, I did watch Bug Juice on the Disney Channel, which I felt like was my... Like, as close to attending camp as a teen as I ever wanted to get. And I feel like <laughs> I sort of got the hype or, like, the the crushes and the vibe and all of that. But it's like, that's as close as I ever wanted to come. You know, I'll be honest. I was thinking I loved Bummer Summer. I loved that novel. But like Wet Hot American Summer is not for me. I did not like I did not care for the reboot. Like, honestly, camp stories don't don't resonate with me super strongly um, because the only camps I went to were really pre-med camps after Girl Scouts. So, oh, my God, kind of a different journey. Um, did we get to see a body? Yes, we did. We got to learn how students pick their cadavers. That's maybe oh that's for God. a different a different discussion. It was very interesting. I had a lot of questions. But thinking about Molly's experience in the tent, it's like your mind can't help but go to the spectrum that she's on, even just thinking of American GIs or thinking of POWs and kind mm-hmm. of their experiences in tents. And I did a kind of like thought experiment where I started running numbers on if I wanted to recreate for my Molly doll, Camp Gowanigan, I could conservatively drop $500 to get the stuff. Her saddle shoes are running at 25 to 35. We'll see if those numbers go up after we release our episode. If I wanted to get some actual World War II memorabilia and set myself up in a tent with other things from American GIs, I could spend about the same. I don't know what that tells you about our culture, but it's something. Well, I think there's so much going on now with World War II in our culture as we're living through this time and COVID. Like on the one hand, when people talk about the rise of Nazism again in our country now, people can't help but make comparisons to World War II and what that war was about and the hopes that people had who, who were acquainted with the concentration camps who air quotes liberated them, that this would never happen again. You know, that everything that happened in World War II, it was for a purpose that this would never happen again. And now Nazism is back in in greater numbers, seemingly, or greater influence than it's had in decades. 
Um, and so, you know, what do we do with that? But also that people living through COVID, and this is sort of like a bibliotherapy aside, but that when people are going through challenging times, there have been articles or lists of books that can help you get through these times. And often Man's Search for Meaning, which is a Holocaust memoir, mm. comes up as a book that a lot of people have found helpful to get through a challenging time. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would you read a Holocaust novel about all the tragedies of the Holocaust to get you through an already difficult time? Why would you want to read something sad to get through a sad time? And yet it's the resiliency of that memoir that resonates mm. with so many people. So that's why The Diary of Anne Frank continues to resonate on a lot of levels that memoir and so many others. So it's just interesting to me knowing that, you know, that's not a new occurrence that people would read mm -hmm. that book during COVID. You know, these memoirs, these books about the Holocaust and World War II, even the triumphalist imaginings of it, have been with us since the war ended itself. People were writing histories of World War II before the war actually ended. So with that in mind, I just can't help but wrap my, I'm really struggling to wrap my head around the storytelling here. It's a yeah. privileged story of an already privileged situation. There's this scene very early on when Molly and her friends get off the bus and they're marveling at the beauty of nature at the camp. And I think it's Linda who says, there's so much sky. And I sort of paused on that because they're not coming from New York City. They're not coming from a place where there's, you know, light pollution and they can't see the stars or something like that. They're coming from a suburban Illinois town. And they already have a pretty privileged existence. So it's not like also this time of recreation. It's not like they've been pulled away from their factory jobs or getting a week off. It's like they have a lot of leisure time. Now they're getting just leisure in another location with guided arts and crafts and sports and swimming instruction and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, really, they're just privileged girls who get more privilege and then have like sort of a friend conflict when they're on put on opposing teams in a game of capture the flag. That's literally the plot of this book. And Molly, air quote, saves the day by like getting the flag and bringing her teammates, freeing them from air quotes prison and leading them through a poison ivy patch back across the lake to victory. And then everyone gets poison ivy. That's the book. I think where these books kind of ping pong all over the place is whether these kids, which is what they are, are part of history or history is a backdrop to the story. Mm. So I think whereas Addie was very much an agent and a change maker of history, we see her participating in systems and, and projects where she's a very active agent. What is, you know, to your point, what is kind of puzzling and compelling at the same time about this particular story is we learn that Molly actually has a pretty in-depth knowledge of the amphibious landing that occurred on D-Day, which is also your wedding day. I mean, um, I mean, isn't I mean, that every, it's like a dream romantic <laughs> date. I mean, everyone dreams of getting married on D-Day. It's just a thing. So she has this pretty in-depth knowledge and yet the the complexity of that or the actual reality of that is very much far away. And I think where we kind of go back and forth is like how much these kids in particular have real knowledge of things that are happening around them. And I, I see where the way that people respond to the series, you know, and people have very different feelings. How much should they be in it? And to think, but it's really a privilege to ask that question, Right. Like Anne yeah. Frank didn't get to see history as a kind of backdrop. 
I see all the time people posting like, I want to live through precedent and times again, or like, I'm done living through history. It's like, you've always been living in and, and with history. I think things are just bad right now. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's just bad. Right now. Everyone's helps. living through history all the time. And also there's more than there's histories that we're living through. So something that struck me too, is that in Samantha's book, when she's on vacation at the lake, she actually is going through the motions or kind of doing a historical reenactment of her own personal history. She's yes. trying to recapture memories of events for which she was literally present with her parents going to that island and literally revisiting scenes of the photographs that she finds in the attic there. So she's wanting to kind of navigate in actually a really serious way some traumatic association she has with this place and a really deep grief she has for the loss of her parents. So, I mean, in a way, it's like you can actually compare Molly and Samantha and say like, well, at least Samantha is dealing like she has a relationship to this place in her own personal history, whereas like Molly has basically no relationship to this place other than no. she likes it. And instead, it's like it becomes almost like a Lord of the Flies situation, except that we do have Mrs. Butternut Squash or whatever her name is. And can we just get into a second? So something that's weird about the telling of this story is that you're landed in camp. You're immediately told, like, everyone's having the time of their lives. Cue Dirty <laughs> Dancing soundtrack. Like, everyone's, like, vibing out, like, playing softball, like, dot, dot, dot. We all know what that means. Like, hanging out with friends. And then they're at dinner one night, and they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we only have three days left of camp. This is on, like, page 10. And we're like, wait yeah. a second. Yeah. We're 10 pages into this book. We're already going home? And then Mrs. Butternut's Miss Butternut's like, ah, uh-uh, no, hold on a second. She gets up at dinner and is like, guys, we all know the color war is coming. And the older campers start like clapping and they're and she's like, they know what this means. And Molly and her friends are like, oh my God, what is this? And then they go on this like dark night of the soul about taking part in this because they're so scared that their own personal fears will have to be navigated in order to t- take part in this war. We'll get into what those are in a second. But Miss Butternut says when she's laying out the details on page 11, she says, um, so what's going to happen is everyone's going to be divided after dinner into a red and blue team. You're going to have a team meeting after this and elect a captain. The red team's on the island. They have to defend the flag. The blue team has to go get it with canoes and whatever else. And she's like, and listen, you you may not see us, but we'll be like all of the counselors and myself, we will be hiding ourselves to supervise this, you're not going to be able to see us, but we'll be watching. And it's like, why is this a necessary feature of this game that the all of the adults have to be invisible? Okay, thank you for asking this question. Okay, thank you. I did some research on Color Wars because I was trying to put my own personal bias aside, which is that we'd have to talk a lot of digits for you to get me to play a game like this today with literally anyone I know. I, it would it would okay. take so much to get me engaged in this kind of activity. So I looked to a good source, which was Leslie Paris's book, Children's Nature, The Rise of the American Summer Camp. And I read some blog posts and a Wall Street Journal and a New York Times piece about like games at kids camps. So one of the ideas behind the color war or the capture the flag is that it gives people a common thing to unite around that isn't one of the other markers they're normally separated by. Like it's not boys versus girls. It's not young kids versus old kids. So part of the notion of the older kids being like, oh, we know what's going on. It Kids who are in different age groups now rally on a team and it teaches you teamwork inter-age groups. 
Mary, how much would it cost to get you to participate in a Capture the Flag game tomorrow? Zero There's dollars. No I would do it for free. <gasps> I no, love you it. wouldn't. Yeah, I would. This is like a core difference between us is that I was like a big time jock growing up. Like I played sports year round. <laughs> I love it. I read this and I was like, wow. They were like, we were, we play tennis and softball and basketball and baseball. And we do Capture the Flag. I was like... I literally, Allison, this was my life when I was nine years old in the summer. This is what I did. In the morning, I went to my grandmother's house and I went swimming. My grandmother would make me a hot dog sandwich for lunch. Then she would take me to basketball camp for four hours. Then my mom would pick me up. I would change in the car and go to an all-star softball practice and either play a game or practice and then go home. I did this every day for fun voluntarily. And I dreamed of going on that show Guts. Did you ever see Guts? Yes. Where I was like, dun 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 guts and you got the piece of the aggro crag i would have done that for free i still would i don't know if it's the fact that i i downed an entire milkshake just prior to this i feel ill and you you what <laughs> like this, first this, of all <laughs> i have not forgotten that you drank that in front of me even though i was like i'm so jealous right now i really want that milkshake i know I'm you sorry. also already this week flexed that you had a funfetti donut when i told you i haven't had that at duncan yet my duncan refuses to carry them or like they're playing games with me and you're like well i know but it's like a lot of calories but it is really good i was like thanks allison <laughs> allison's was i'm just like allison Okay, but I can't believe that that sickens you. My former life is like a tomboy jock person. No, no so it's it's not about that. It's, it's wow. honest to goodness residual anxiety of being so bad at these things and being self-aware enough to know how bad I was at these things. And I'm going to say this about <laughs> Molly because, no, I think it needs to be said. Uh-oh. And again, it's like we have made the claim that Molly is a mirror, so we need to deal with this as well. It's tough. Molly, in the intimacy and echo chamber of the tent, learns in a sleepover type context what her friends are afraid of and yep. then uses it against them. And I have to say that's no bueno. Like, I I have to say... That's a huge know, violation. Harkening back to other friends that we've met, I feel like this had the vibes of the girl who was kind of mean to Kirsten. And honestly, part of me was like, for all of, you know, everything else that was going on with Tia Dolores, Josefina would never, Addie would never, nope. Sarah would never. Like, so many of the friends. Felicity, Felicity probably would, like, let's okay, be honest. Yeah, true. Like, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, honestly, I was thinking a lot about this because the other night I was watching a TikTok where someone was roller skating and I was like, yeah. oh my God, that looks so fun. And like they, there was disco music playing. And I was like, this is so fun. And Anna, like trying to be very nice to me in a genuine way was like, when this is all over, I'm going to throw you like a roller skating birthday party. And I was like, you can't. I was like, that's a beautiful intention. But just so you know, like Allison's nightmare is roller skating as it. And I know Anna doesn't like it. So I was like, it's beautiful that you're willing to like push through that for me. But I would never ask that because it would be just be me alone at my birthday party. Yes. First of all, I'd be like alone yes, on skates. Like, hi, yes, um, I guess nobody's coming like me ugly crying at Rana roll. But like, <laughs> it's so dark. It's like I would never use roller skating against you. I would never use that against you because I know no. how you feel about it. And I like and a good friend is someone who's like, OK, I know that, you know, like, I won't even get into the TikTok you sent me about lemonade. Like, I won't. But, like, let's say that we were going somewhere and you felt 
awkward about wanting to order order water and basically make your own lemonade using provided lemons and sugar packets, I would order that on your behalf so that you could have the thing that you want, but you wouldn't have to face your fear about it. That's being a good friend. Whereas Molly, it's like, Molly, the sanctity of a friend disclosure at a sleepover, you violate that to win a meaningless game of capture the flag. But again, if Molly is a metaphor for America, which I just think she obviously is, it's like people were willing to play dirty. People were willing to use secrets, to use espionage, to get poison ivy. I could just see like Bruce Springsteen reading this book and he's like, yeah. And then goes like deeper. He's like, yeah, you think (laughs) the betrayals of Vietnam are unbelievable to you? Do you know that Molly threw worms on a girl, her best friend's head to win a game of capture the flag? And you think the U.S. government didn't lie to us about Vietnam? And then he sits down and he like starts playing Badlands or like Born in the USA. And everyone's like, Bruce, too deep. So, I mean, Molly does go through some challenges. I will say they're moderate in this book, but like she feels betrayed by one of her friends. And then that's kind of why she acts out. There's a line that's very haunting. First, I practically drown. Then my best friend treats me like an enemy. I guess friendship doesn't count during a war. And part of me is sort of like, girl, who are you monologuing for? Like, who is this for? And I just keep thinking, like, I keep kind of imagining this against the backdrop of like 1980s pen pal programs or like people to people where the notion is like, you can be friends with anyone and you can build bridges all over the world. And I think where these books are really kind of getting into a sticky place for us. I'm invoking it. I don't care. Much like 90 Day Fiance. It's like, are these friendships possible across such great chasms of difference? And we've had people write to us. We've had people who are way back in the Kirsten episodes and exploring her relationship with Singing Bird and saying, yes, it is possible to be friends when you don't speak the same language. 90 Day Fiance teaches us you don't need to have literally anything in common sometimes. I just um, keep thinking about Miley Cyrus saying I didn't mean to start a war. I only wanted to let you in. And it's like, that to me is like echoing through the ages. It's like this book to that. If you can't draw a straight line, it's like, I can't help you. But when- Molly basically <laughs> thinks being a good friend is like someone never holding you accountable and always giving you what you want, even when it's yes. to their detriment. Like Linda gets Linda gets assigned to the other team. She doesn't choose it. No. And she literally, she doesn't like punish Molly, but she just sort of is like acting like a member of her team. And Molly's like, I guess friendship can't live, <laughs> exist in a war. And it's like, this isn't a personal betrayal. Like you need to chill out. I think what this book has brought out also and... There are different kinds of people in the world. Would you rather have fun or win? And what is the Venn diagram of that like for you? I would like to respond to that by quoting. <laughs> that means I winning. can't even get this out. No, I want to respond to that by quoting something that I read on a Starbucks cup once that was attributed to Winona Judd. Allison's losing it. Yes. You didn't expect this, but here it is, Allison. I'm a deep well, okay? Winona Judd allegedly said, You can either be right or be loved. <laughs> Stop. No, that's like neoliberal (laughs) nonsense. No, it wasn't a Starbucks cup. So that actually fits. But I'm just saying, what was your question? (laughs) So I think there are people for whom winning is the joy. And yeah. there are no, people not for me. I don't care like about that. Me, because you've played board games with me. I would rather throw it. And we both have did. Fun. We played that Hitler game and we both like Secret took it Hitler. to such a weird place. And like everyone was like trying. 
I think the more I play a game and there's someone <laughs> in the group who genuinely is obsessed with winning, the more I take it to an absurd place because yes. it's all insane to me and I don't care. Like, that's my joy. Like, Molly, dead, dead serious, dead serious, is like, we're going to recreate the D-Day landing. I have seen the newsreels and we oh are going to line up these canoes and land. And, you know, spoiler alert, ladies, we thought it was red versus blue. All along, it was pink because she has to slather her body in lotion when she gets covered in poison ivy. I would have liked a reckoning of was any of this worth it? Because my answer is no. Absolutely not. Think of the fun. Like, okay, so like we haven't been able to have like this kind of fun friend time because of COVID. How good does it sound just being out on canoes with your friends? Like, honestly, if I was part of this, I would have been like, hey, everyone, this game doesn't matter. There's really no discernible prize that's worth fighting over. We could have a great day just out picnicking, partying in the canoes. That would be joy to me. I was reminiscing the other day about, I don't remember which birthday this was, but you took me to that movie theater that was playing that play with Helen Mirren playing the queen. And we went to this like really cool movie theater and like we got ice cream or something. We just had like this really, really fun day together. And I was like, RIP, like I miss a fun, like I just have not seen you in the flesh in a long time. And it's like, yeah, I'm seeing you now, but it's not the same. I'm like, remember those days when we would have a friend hangout? There was nothing competitive about that. Like it was just like spending time in someone's company. If you looked at this book, if somebody had just said, hey girls, do you want to go out in the lake and canoe and at the end of the day you get an ice cream cone? Because that's what they everyone gets, both teams after this. They yes. all get an ice cream cone. Yes. This to me, like when I was in gym class, the only thing I genuinely hated was the presidential fitness test. If somebody said to me, Mary, you can run a mile and at the end of this mile you get an ice cream cone, I would be like, great. The people who run outside for fun, I'm having your head examined. I don't get it. But if someone was like, hey guys, do you want to run to a Dairy Queen? I'd be like, let's go. If you just said that to me, like, hey, you get to hang out with your friends doing literally anything and have ice cream at the end of the day, I'd be like, great. I don't need this competition. I think I, like, I want people to tell us if this resonates with you, because I think this kind of competition, it just doesn't connect to me. And even thinking about the games that they contrive in Babysitter's Club, very stressful to me. Very stressful thinking about field day, thinking about days from my own elementary and middle school experience. Sports is different. Not my Sports favorite. is different to me because I'm a huge basketball fan. So playing basketball, I always played in a tournament called February Frenzy over February break. That was a life or death situation to me. Like I had a nemesis who was on another team. I only knew her first name, but like every year it was like, I always saw her at February Frenzy. Oh. would always go at each other. Like she was a point guard. I was a point guard. It was like, this is serious. If I don't win this meaningless tournament, I will lose my mind. Spoiler alert, we never won. However, <laughs> it was like those rivalries were real. Like it, But it was because I was with my friends on the team and we all got to hang out together mm-hmm. all week at this place, you know, at my school, which was repurposed for this tournament for like CYO teams. Again, like totally meaningless. That was where it felt real to me. But again, it was really an exercise in friendship. Like I get to hang out with my friends, but the outcome did seem like it mattered. I mean, to throw it back a little bit, we've had a few spelling bees in the course of reading these American Girl books. And, you know, those felt pretty important. Uh, Spelling bees really stressed me out, like totally stressed me out. I'm a phonetic speller, so that's not for me. I want to tell you what stressed me out. I want to read you a line. In 1944, it was hard for American family to take a vacation together. Allison. 
And no, <laughs> I want to say this because this is probably our fifth book where <laughs> the opening line of at least one in the series is something like, would it surprise you that during a global oh genocide, people couldn't go on vacay? Vacay was not. And I, I so think weird. What's, what's so interesting is I think we dislike the book five of each arc because it tells on the series as a whole in a way that is so stark. Yes. And it always does where it's like we remove the characters into some kind of situation. And I think it's almost always a more rural situation. It's like extracting people. And it's saying like, when we're able to place children in a fully kind of calculated, a fully kind of self-sustaining environment, what do we want these children to be and to do? And Leslie Paris's book that I mentioned, she writes really smartly about like why there are camps, like the different movements that came out of New York and other places. And I think what this book shows so well is sort of like exactly what the notions are behind how Molly should be a girl and how she should experience the war. This this portion just honestly took me aback because it I think this particular part because of stuff that I'm working on outside of here Part of why it bothers me is there's a whole kind of thread within anarchist and working class communities of retreating to nature and retreating to campsites and finding meaningful community in those. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that this is written about, it's sort of like, well, camps are for people to leave their, their middle class lives to have an experience. And that's what they are. And that's what it's always been. I think that's true. And I think something I was actually thinking about the people in my life for whom camp has been really meaningful as I was reading mm. this book, because I know that it's not my experience, but that's definitely not to say that that's everyone's experience. And I actually had a boss when I was in college who like her closest friends in the world were her friends from summer camp. And it because it was because, as she explained to my coworker and I, that she grew up in a town where there was not a lot of Jewish families. She was Jewish and she would go to this camp for Jewish kids in the summer, sleep away camp. And it was like one, like she met all these other kids whose life had the same sort of like ritual and culture that hers did. She didn't feel as like outside of things. And they were like lifelong, really deep friends. And it was her joy to like send her kids to this camp when they were young and so on. And also like I've known kids who have also gone to like performing arts camps in the summer and it had a similar experience where it was like, I feel weird at my school and I don't feel weird in this place. There's a great movie called Camp that's about this. If you've not seen it, it's sort of a musical. Um, I watched this when I was a teen and I'm looking back and I'm like, there are times literally where I'm like, how did I not know I was gay? And that's one of those moments. But um, it's a really great movie. So I think it can have like this empowering thing. If like I'm saying, you don't, you're not part, you're not like part of the mainstream culture and then going to be with the mainstream culture in another location, um, but I think for this, I think what's resonating with me is like the peek into the past is truly bonkers. Like the level of dissonance that went into the writing of that, that's like, yeah, it might surprise you to learn that like people couldn't go to Cabo during World War II. Like I weird. Mean, that's the tension, right? So uh, we both really appreciated the documentary Crip Camp. Mm -hmm. which gets into the exact dynamic you're talking about where people who are disabled, who don't have community where they're from, create these lifelong friendships, alliances, and in some cases, activist circles out of literally going to this camp. And in our area, there's the hole in the wall gang camp, which is a really important place. 
Um, but I think part of where we're bumping up against the writing specifically, so I'm not coming for camp, is this is also the age of Auschwitz, of Manzanar, of the Gulag. Like this is the age of where camp has a lot of different meanings. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do a whole episode on this, but a listener a long time ago pointed out for for us as she was rethinking the Molly story, the distance between what women had to go through to survive every day in a concentration camp and the challenges that are presented to Molly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what she's pointed out to us is the very real ways that those camps were sites of female friendship and solidarity and mutual aid um, in ways that actually this book is fighting against. Like, yes, there is friendship in this book, but it's really not about mutual aid. It's really a story mm-hmm. that centers Molly as she emerges as the lead, the leader and the like, you know, substantive captain of this team and saves the day. It, it goes from being a, a story that pretends to be about community and collective action to actually being a story about the triumph of an individual. And I think yes. that's also another kind of like sad parallel for like American history in the 20th century is that increasingly it focuses on the individual and really the benefits that society can serve for that like singular person, not a sense of like collective well-being. So that's another like really important, I think, contrast to keep in mind is like we think with this idea of camp in World War II. I mean, maybe because I'm a pacifist, I sort of feel at the end of this and every war, like who actually won? Like, I think the idea of winning a war is an incredibly bizarre idea that people are particularly obsessed with in the past few hundred years. Like, arguably out of the Felicity books, like the colonists won that war because they were able to free themselves from the empire. Right. Is that really like winning? I think is kind of a strange idea. Like Molly ends up riddled with poison ivy. She has tested her friendships. She's carb loading to kind of like get through it. She's yep. writing a weird letter to her dad. Like if that's winning, I don't need to participate. It's so it's so rough. Like honestly, the ending of the book does not feel like a win at all to me. I was kind of reflecting on how we got here, and I just sort of feel like you know we've passed the. Um, the inception year for MTV. And I'm just wondering if Val was sort of like sitting by her lonesome, like in her house, maybe her kids are at school for the day. She flips on MTV, like, what are these kids all about? And she sees Vacation by the Go-Go's, you know, foundational music video. If you've not heard that album, please check it out. They're amazing. Secondly, Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And she's like putting these pieces together. And she hears like Van Halen, model citizen, zero discipline. And she's like, wait a second. Who does that sound like? Looks in the mirror. (laughs) She's also hearing Ralph Nader. Thank you for the seatbelt. She's hearing. Thank you. She's hearing environmentalists. And I think this is an incredibly kind of strange part of a peek into the past that made me go. what? Um, She talks about people going to work in factories and like parents Molly's uh, parents' age, they didn't take time to think about how factory smoke and soot were polluting the air. They were too busy thinking about what war materials were being made inside factories. And there's a lot we could say about that, but I think something that we have since learned in the historical literature is people tend to think of environmentalism in certain times as being this kind of bougie thing, right? Like it's privilege. Mm. It's a privilege to be able to care about the environment. 
And if you read the work of Chad Montry and other labor historians, we know that people who worked in factories had this immediate and intimate knowledge of what was going wrong, and they fought up against it. And they were some of the earliest advocates for environmental protections. It's factory owners who don't care. Exactly. And that's still true today, even if you look at all the (laughs) contests we're seeing over water pollution in communities where corporations have dumped a lot of chemicals into the the ground surrounding their plants or whatever. It's not the owners who are like, oops, we accidentally like put a ton of waste into the area and all now like the cancer rates are going up. Hmm, maybe we should explore this and hold ourselves accountable. It's always the workers' mm-hmm. families who are bearing the brunt of this, who then, you know, do the research themselves, call for collective action and organize. Like that's happening in multiple cities right now across the country where you know these issues are at play and have been at play in the past. Like it's not as you're saying, rich people who are like, let's hold ourselves accountable. If anything, <laughs> it's like rich people culture and vacation culture in this period and a little earlier that is sort of cloying by taking on the apparatus of labor culture. Um, as a sort of like uh, tokenism or a, a luxury, uh, you can look at the history of tanning as an example of this. Like at what point does getting a tan become a sign of luxury? Like I've gone somewhere where I can get a tan mm. as opposed to like I work outdoors and I'm getting a tan because I labor outside. Or you don't need to tan because of melanin. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking um, I really recommend the book Milltown by Carrie Arsenal. And she grew up in a place that was a paper factory in Maine and subsequently had fights with Poland Spring and other companies. But talking about this legacy of all these people and her family and circles getting cancer and mm-hmm. how they kind of call these companies to task. And I think where I kind of bristled against the idea Like It's so condescending to say that people who work in these buildings don't have an awareness of their dangers when they live it. And it also makes environmentalism seem like something other than what it's actually been in American culture. And I want to believe that in subsequent years, Molly and her friends, like, because they say like camps could also raise environmental consciousness. Maybe they were part of the first Earth Day in 1970. I mean, maybe they could have like another race on the canoes. I don't know. I, I mean, this book has taken a lot out of me. It's aged me. Do you think she like celebrated the first Earth Day while she also proudly voted for Nixon as a member of the silent majority? Yeah. (sighs) My grandma got a thank you card from the Nixon campaign. Really? Yeah, I can show it to you. I don't super know what she was up to, but she loved writing to politicians and she kept their letters. That's rough. She that's was like, she was working during World War II. She was a wage earner. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I um, don't know. I guess she I had to. I don't know if it's cool, but I mean, we're life. coming we're coming to a point where like the next book is is six. It's happening. Can't believe we made it. I can't either. I mean, we'll see if we make it. I don't want to like declare victory if we're not there yet but i'm gonna need some counseling after this what does it all mean allison that this was our mirror i don't know i mean i think the fortunate thing is after we do book six we are far from done with molly we are lining up people that we want to talk to there's a lot more we want to explore about her stories and then also what's not covered so different Mm -hmm. ideas and stories about girlhood particularly related to the holocaust and the war in other contexts um and of course we have to watch the molly film 
Can't wait for that. Truly cannot wait for that. Um, and then after this, just because some people have been asking, we are doing Kaya. So we are going back a few hundred years after this. And in a weird turn of events, this show has created a lot of competition for those books. So, you know, I am still pursuing them, but um, I will get them in time. It's happening. Absolutely. So it is very exciting. So if people want to find you, if they want to talk to you about any of these issues, where should they do that? You know, please seek me out on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I've loved all yesterday was Dolly Parton's birthday. A lot of listeners sent me Dolly items. Love it. Love hearing from our listeners. And on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And Allison, if somebody wants to reach out to you to kind of talk you through your fear of roller skating or, you know, really any of these fears at this point, where might they find you? Yeah. And I'm going to be honest. I'm looking for leads on Molly saddle shoes because my Molly has been wearing colonial garb and it's time. It's time. So um, I can be found at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram, uh, where I love to hear from folks there. You can also follow the show at a girl's pod on Twitter and American girls podcast on Instagram. You can find our email, our PO box and every other way to reach us right on our website. Very exciting. And we will be announcing next month's Patreon very soon and releasing this one's also very soon. Very soon. Very exciting. Some would say too soon. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Impossible. We have to do it within the next few days. (laughs) True. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We so appreciate all of your support and we'll see you in the next episode. Yay.